welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. We have Dr. H. Gilbert Welsh giving a lecture on cancer screening. You won't want to miss this lecture. This is a lecture he gave his grand rounds, and it is spectacular. It goes through all of the classical fallacies of cancer screening with some new material to boot that you won't want to miss. A student came to me afterwards and said, that lecture was the best. And I said, you mean you liked it? And he said, no, I mean it was, in fact, the best lecture I've been to. So on that positive note, Stick around for this bonus episode, A Lecture on Cancer Screening by Gilbert Welsh. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. But first, just this morning, I gave a lecture grand rounds on how to keep up with the medical literature. 90% of the talk was techniques that I use to stay abreast of the medical literature and how to build it into my routine. As one of the two examples I picked for an example of a clinical trial that really is not suited to change our practice, I picked on the POLO trial. Listeners of this podcast will know that I took the POLO trial to task on a prior episode of this podcast. And since then, of course, the FDA ODAC voted 7 to 5 that the risk-benefit profile of Olaparib was favorable for germline mutant pancreas cancer, and the FDA has approved the drug. However, the drug remains a poor choice for patients with pancreas cancer, and that trial is deeply, deeply problematic. And after I gave my lecture... Many, many people had questions, of course. I ended up staying about 30, 35 minutes over. But then at the end, a drug rep from AstraZeneca came up to me, and this person was visibly angry, and they were fuming, and they yelled at me, and they were yelling about this trial. They said that um, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't market this drug if I didn't believe in it, and they disagreed with many, many things I said, and they were uh, very, very upset and yelling at me, and I have never experienced that before because it's never drug reps that get mad because, frankly, um, drug reps, in my experience, uh, don't sort of define their self uh, in terms of the particular products that they go out and promote. And so I was shocked uh, to see someone uh, so up in arms. Um, and uh, this person raised uh, counterpoints that they thought I didn't uh, discuss adequately, uh, which ultimately don't change the central thrust of my argument, which is what this person just doesn't understand, that yes, I didn't mention X, and that is in fact the case, but uh, even acknowledging X uh, doesn't change what I was saying. So in honor of this uh, angry uh, AstraZeneca drug rep um, who yelled at me, uh, something I think is uh, very inappropriate, um, I... I'm going to take the honor of once more talking about why polo trial is awful, awful, awful. 
So, of course, this is a randomized controlled trial of patients with germline mutation BRCA-positive metastatic pancreas cancer, and they are getting principally fulfirinox in the front line, or although 13, about 13 to 15% of them received a different platinum therapy. And of course, after they had received at least 16 weeks of this therapy, if they had no evidence of progression, they were allowed to enroll in this study. And the median number of months of therapy that somebody had received, you know, four months was the minimum, but the median was five in this study, five and 5.1 in the two arms. So these were people who did not receive, on average, six months of therapy, and just a third of them received more than six months. Although in those people, who knows how much they might have been able to get. Um, if the doctor were willing to push the full Firinox strategy um, or to drop the Oxali and just give them 5-FU. Of course, uh, they were then randomized to Olaparib or placebo, and there was a tiny uh, difference in progression-free survival, an endpoint that has never been suited for pancreas cancer, a highly lethal malignancy, so we don't need to use a surrogate endpoint like PFS, and the median PFS benefit was uh, very, very slightly increased by this drug. Of course, overall survival curves are absolutely superimposable, and the median is 8.9 versus 8.1 months. This drug rep had the audacity to tell me that there was a numerical difference between those two curves. Uh, I, I said that, you know, it's not statistically significant, and the curves are crisscrossing at a couple points. They're touching. So, uh, you know, I don't know what numerical differences you see there, but I see two overlapping curves. Uh, largely overlapping, uh, but it's a numerical difference. Whatever you need to tell yourself to sell this uh, awful medication. Um, and um, the drug, of course, has more adverse events uh, than placebo, uh, more any grade fatigue, more nausea, more anemia. Um, it is uh, worse than taking sugar pill. And health-related quality of life wasn't improved with Olaparib. So what are my general criticisms of this drug? This is a toxic, uh, costly, uh, quote, genome-targeted cancer drug um, that is tested in a trial that's very odd. Uh, patients who have only received uh, 16 weeks of therapy are permitted to enter this study. Um, Two-thirds of the patients who enter this study have received between four and six months of therapy. Uh, then they're enrolled in a study where they're randomized to Olaparib or sugar pill. Um, notably, 9.7% uh, of patients who get on sugar pill have a radiographic response to sugar pill. Okay. So the first problem of this study is, of course, the endpoint is not an endpoint that matters. It's not overall survival. Health-related quality of life is not also improved. Um, people can uh, say there's a numerical difference in the OS curves. That's uh, ludicrous to say. Uh, there's absolutely no difference in those OS curves, and nobody who has in, uh, any sense would say such a thing. Uh, PFS is modestly improved, statistically significant. So PFS is not a reliable or valid endpoint in this disease. It's never been accepted before. Um, the drug adds toxicity. Um, the patients who entered this study... Um, were receiving full furinox therapy, the majority of them, um, what might they have gotten if they were not put on this study? Well, I think placebo is not what they would have gotten. Many doctors might have given them a full six months of uh, oxaliplatin-containing regimen, and then they might have dropped the oxali and continued 5-FU uh, indefinitely, particularly if the tumor continues to shrink. Now, there's one notable thing in this study. You need to know a little bit of background. In an old paper by Tanak and colleagues, they looked at the response on placebo-containing arms of randomized controlled trials. How many people who get a placebo have a response? Now, of course, a placebo should not give you a response, but, of course, there's measurement error in scans. Measuring the size of a tumor on a CAT scan is like measuring a cloud through your fingertips, not like measuring your height. 
And so there's going to be some measurement error. Some people are going to be declared responders, even if there were no responses. And I think what Tanak found was roughly between 2 to 3% of people on placebo-containing arms have a response. In this study, something very, very odd happens. 9.7% of people assigned to the placebo arm of the polo trial had a response. And that's in the FDA slides. Now, that's astonishingly high. That's higher than what you'd expect. And the most likely culprit for why it is so high is that these are patients who are still responding to platinum-based chemotherapy that they have not seen since trial entry. In other words, you were taking people whose tumors were shrinking, 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 and were continuing to shrink on platinum therapy. You were halting the platinum therapy and putting them on a placebo-containing arm. And some of those people, one in 10 roughly, had continued shrinkage such that it met resist criteria of response. That is crazy. Just just imagine what would have happened if you had kept giving them some 5-FU and some oxaliplatin, one or the other, uh, or both. Uh, it would have been likely that they would have continued to have even deeper responses. And overall survival might not have been null. It might have gone the other way. And these were my central criticisms of the polo trial and why I think that oncologists should be highly critical of this drug uh, and this trial, that this is a drug that doesn't improve survival in a highly lethal condition. It doesn't improve health-related quality of life. This is a drug that has a PFS benefit, but in a setting where patients might have been deprived of active anti-cancer drugs that has previously shown overall survival benefit. Let's not forget that was the hurdle fulfirinox cleared. Previously shown overall survival benefit. They're being deprived of that. And some of them, nonetheless, are still responding to therapy they haven't seen in weeks, potentially. Um, this is a deeply problematic trial. Uh, and so to the drug rep who um, takes this trial to heart, believes that this is actually what's best for patients. And the drug rep even told me that they think all patients with pancreatic cancer should get germline bracket testing on the basis of this trial. I would say I disagree with all those conclusions. This drug shouldn't have been approved. It wouldn't have been approved a decade ago when the FDA had some backbone and some sense. Um, it shouldn't be prescribed. Uh, doctors should first maximize how much they can get out of platinum-based therapies and, and then put somebody on 5-FU indefinitely, which is really what you are well within your rights to do uh, an anti-cancer drug in this space. There is no evidence that Olaparib has an improvement over placebo, and placebo is arguably not a fair bar. It's putting the bar beneath the floor. Um, the FDA, if they had uh, good sense, wouldn't have approved the drug. Um, we should be reluctant to prescribe the drug. Um, we should... Uh, not meet with drug reps to who will come and say things like there's a numerical difference um, in the um, overall survival curve, which is ludicrous when you look at overall survival curve touching on multiple instances and crossing um, on uh, at least one instance. Uh, that's a ludicrous proposition. So I think that, you know, um, I guess I, I can understand why somebody who markets a drug product would necessarily uh, come to believe that that product is beneficial. Um, uh, although it is rare to me because most drug reps I do think do separate their sense of self from what they're actually doing, uh, just like all of us do separate our sense of self from what we do. And we ought to do that. I mean, I'm an advocate for separating the two. Uh, but I was shocked that this person uh, takes it so much to heart and actually thinks that this is a favorable trial uh, when it's uh, clearly deeply flawed um, in primary endpoint, health-related quality of life in a control arm that has a very, very high response rate that is very, very odd and not consistent with the prior literature and makes one worry uh, that you are actually uh, with, withholding a therapy that would continue to drive response. And for the particular concern that the idea that some fraction of patients on the study 
received more than the minimum amount of therapy does not obviate or eliminate the concern that patients in the control arm would have done even better had they received more therapy. Facts that suggest that include already there are responses on a placebo arm from obviously prior therapy. Nothing else could do that. Imagine had one received more anti-cancer drugs. Two, these participants, like all trial participants, are likely enriched for those who are most able to tolerate uh, and most able to receive further anti-cancer therapy. Thus, they might be tolerating full furanox just fine with no neuropathy and, and maybe potentially not much adverse events because they are trial participants. Uh, another reason why they might be able to take even more. Um, and then finally, that 5-FU is often continued as a single agent even after uh, six months of oxaliplatin are administered. Um, all of those reasons uh, discount the concern that just because a subgroup, a third, received more than six months, it, it eliminates the concern uh, that people would have done better uh, had they gotten more chemotherapy. I mean, the real question here is, were control arm patients um, maxed out on chemotherapy? Uh, and the answer is almost surely no. That is the, the key question. So this person is totally wrong. Um, and so, Polotrol gets two thumbs down. Drug rep from AstraZeneca, two thumbs down. And on that positive note, we shift to our interview with H. Gilbert Welsh. You won't want to miss this. Thank you so much. It's, it's great to be here. Um, and I want to dive right in because I've got a lot to do. And uh, some of this is new and I just want to sort of see how it works. And uh, uh, so I want to start with a case. Um, and the case starts with Mr. Baker, a 60 year old former smoker. Um, by the way, Mr. Baker's not his real name, no HIPAA violation here. Um, chief complaint of hoarseness times six weeks, um, he's otherwise well. He feels well, and I, I, I'm talking to him on the phone. It's a real case, um, and it's early in my career, and it's like, wow, I, I barely recognize his voice. Um, but he's otherwise uh, fine. And one of the great things, I was working for the White River Junction VA's tiny hospital, uh, little under 50 docs, but we had an ENT. He was right down the hall. I walked in, would you take a quick look at uh, his vocal cords? And he was referred to ENT and a small uh, vocal cord uh, tumor uh, was uh, removed. Literally about two days after the phone call, which I thought that's pretty good. Um, his hoarseness resolved. He got a short course of uh, radiation uh, RX uh, and he was told to return if his hoarseness returned. Um, and, and really, you know, that should be the end of the story. You know, good. Yeah, that's good medical care. You got it pretty fast and so on and so forth. Uh, but someone along the way, someone along the way ordered a chest x-ray. Now, some doctors might argue he should have had a chest x-ray anyway, given the possibility of lung cancer. I mean, that's why they teach us about the recurrent laryngeal nerve, right? You know, I mean, it's not a common presentation of lung cancer horses, but it could be. But I would counter, you know, once you'd found the cancer responsible for Mr. Baker's hoarseness, we did not need to go looking for a second cancer. Uh, but the horse was out of the barn. <laughs> Keep it, lose it. <laughs> Bad? Okay. All right. Uh, so, so the chest x-ray had a finding, uh, uh, of course. And the, and the finding was uh, a widened mediastinum. So the radiologist's recommendation was CT. Very good. So C-chest CT uh, was recommended. Um, now, the CT scan showed, uh, report, 
uh, what was a normal chest. The chest was fine. What was problem? You know, it's sort of some rotational thing. You know, it's always something, you know, confluence of shadows or, you know, the mediastinum is fine. But as all of you know, that little yellow line is the diaphragm, and, and that poses a problem for radiologists uh, because any chest CT has to get a fair amount of abdomen. And of course, the converse is true. Abdomen has to get a little bit of chest. And there, Mr. Baker's right kidney was a five centimeter uh, renal mass. Um, and it was compatible with, with renal cell carcinoma. That's what said, compatible with renal cell carcinoma. Now, we, uh, thanks to advancements in, in terminology, we now, in ICD-10, um, have a term for this, and that's, of course, an incidentaloma. You know, we weren't looking for it. We just sort of stumbled onto it uh, in the process of medical care. So let me just remind you sort of, I know it's early in the morning where we are, you know, uh, this is a case of hoarseness uh, progressing to kidney cancer. <laughs> now, that's uh, not something I was taught about in medical school. And of course, it's not in terms of disease progression, but it is in terms of medical care progression, you know, and our desire to sort of check things out and make sure everything is okay. Well, the cancer surgeon was sure what to do. Um, and she said something like this, look, um, Here's an otherwise healthy guy who has kidney cancer. Yes, it's major surgery, referring to a nephrectomy. Uh, but because he's healthy, he will sail through it. We have got a chance to save this man's life. And, of course, that is really, really evocative uh, language. Uh, but Mr. Baker and I were a little less sure. I, I was a junior faculty member at the time. Uh, this is the you know, mid-1990s, and I was just beginning to work with the Medicare data, and I knew the 30-day operative case fatality following nephrectomy in Medicare patients was between 2 and 4%, sort of depending where you were looking. So that was like, you know, that's a real thing to think about, right? That's a big deal. And Mr. Baker, he was like apoplectic. He was kind of like, Dr. you kidding me. I come in with hoarseness, now you want to take my kidney out? I don't think so. You got to go do, you got to do better than this. You got to, you know, we, we got to do better than this. But the cancer surgeon persisted, and now she had statistics. She told me that because of early detection, the average five-year survival of patients with kidney cancer had increased from 34% in 1950 to 62% currently. Wow. And the cancer center, you know, I, I was sort of surprised. The cancer surgeons quoting statistics to me. I thought I was supposed to be the data guy. I thought that, that was my job. I thought I was the data guy. So I said, right, I got to look at some data. And so every piece of data I'm going to show you today is coming from the SEER program, which is the federal's effort, the federal government's major effort to catalog uh, cancer in this country. Think of it as the nation's tumor registry. Um, and we're, we're now looking at uh, renal cell carcinoma, and that's the mortality rate from 1975 to the most recent year of data. H how would you describe that? Yeah, it's pretty stable. <laughs> of course, there's nothing stable about the incidence rate. It has more than doubled. It's up about 2.5 fold. Now, what would you guess my inference is? Well, if I had to say one word of what this picture looks like to me, to me, that's overdiagnosis. Now, what's the alternative explanation that I hear from some doctors? I used to hear it a lot more than I do today, but what is the alternative? There is an alternative explanation. Anybody wanna? Okay, in fact, two things are going on. 
the underlying true cancer occurrence is rising and we're getting better at treating them. It's not just that we're treating them, our treatments must be getting better. And by the way, they must be getting better at just the right rate to offset the increase in true cancer occurrence. You know, if we get better too fast, mortality would fall. If we're not quite able to keep up, mortality would rise. <laughs> Is that possible? Yeah, yeah, it's possible. But to find such a perfect counterbalancing of opposing forces would be a remarkable coincidence. As in P less than 0.001. Yes, it is possible, but it's certainly not the most parsimonious explanation. Okay, so at this point, I'd like you to bring out your little devices and go to pollev.com slash HGWMD and answer this question. What would you guess has happened to the number of nephrectomies over this period? And for the epidemiologists, you can see, think of the rate of nephrectomy as well. I don't care. This is what they call the icebreaker question. Uh, this is not a trick question. It's really just to get you to do this. All right. So we have a pretty, pretty convincing majority here saying it's gone up. Of course it's gone up. It's gone up about 2.44. That incidence curve is what's going to drive the rate of nephrectomy. So that was the, the icebreaker. Uh, let's go to a little tougher question. Given this picture, what would you guess has happened to five-year survival over this period? Ooh. Ooh. Now, it's totally understanding, but that's why it's good I'm talking about this. Now, the majority is wrong. Sometimes that happens. So go ahead and change your answers, and let's uh, get that. This will be real time. Come on, that's it, that's it. Change your answers. This is kind of, no one's keeping track of you. Uh, yeah, there, that's what I like to see. And, and don't go to it's gone down. Yeah, that is not the direction to go. All right, that's good. That now we're, we're certainly a passing grade now. But this is hard, isn't it? And it isn't about calculus, it isn't about requiring a big model, it's about algebra. It's about knowing the numerators and the denominators of the five-year survival statistic. So how can five-year survival go up while mortality is stable? That is counterintuitive. And to understand why that's happening is you have to know about the denominator of a five-year survival rate, which it isn't really a rate anyway, but we call it a rate. But the denominator is people who are diagnosed, the number of people who are diagnosed. And the numerator is the number in the denominator who are alive five years later. That's what a five-year survival statistic is. So if you have more diagnoses, you know, as you increase the rate of diagnoses, and you have more diagnoses minus the same number, or formally the same rate of death, of course it goes up. In other words, the more people you're diagnosing, the typical patient lives longer in a flat mortality rate situation. That's complex, right? That's a little counterintuitive.
We didn't talk about this paper yesterday. I'm surprised. This is actually, I think, one of the most fun, and it was really directly driven by this patient. And it's an old paper. Um, it's year 2000, I think. But are increasing five-year survival rates evidence of success against cancer? Now, let me start with this question. What would most physicians or public health professionals associate with an increasing five-year survival rate for Cancer X, if it's increasing over time. Would they associate it with falling mortality with Cancer X? you think they'd think that would be indicative of that, or would they think it was indicative of rising incidence for Cancer X? What would most physicians in public health, what would you think? This is an opinion question. Yeah, I, I, I think, I, I share your opinion. Most doctors would think a rising five-year survival rate over time would be indicative of falling mortality. So they would expect that increasing survival was associated with lower mortality, but it's not. Now let me just explain what we're looking at here. You're looking at a scatter plot of the 20 most common solid tumors in the SEER data. So each dot is a cancer, prostate cancer, breast cancer, and so forth. And I'm plotting simply the change in five-year survival against the change in mortality. And for those of you that know correlation coefficients, you know, it was zero. Now, I have never, you know, I used to teach biostatistics. I, like, I've never seen a zero before. And by the way, I was just lucky, right? That probably helped me get this published, but it was a zero correlation coefficient. There's no relationship in the 20 most common tumors for the change of five-year survival against the change in mortality at the time I did this paper in the SEER data. They would not expect increased survival to be associated with rising incidence. Why would we think of survival as reflecting how good we're treating people, not how many people they are. We think it's about something, you know, it's, it, it feels like it ought to be something about treatment. But in fact, it is associated with rising incidence. It is associated, you know, the rising incidence is what rising five-year survival is associated with, is correlated with in the SEER data. Its correlation coefficient is 0.49. It's highly statistically significant. So I want to just do a quick digression on five-year survival, or any measure of the proportion of patients alive following a fixed period. It could be 10-year survival, it could be anything that is built off a case-based denominator, patients who are diagnosed. It is a perfectly valid measure to compare two groups diagnosed in the same manner, like an RCT of treatment. You randomize uh, patients with AML to treatment A versus treatment B, they're all diagnosed in the same way, and you measure five-year survival. That's perfectly valid. It is always a biased measure to make inferences about the value of early diagnosis and treatment across time. That is 1980 versus today, or place, US versus UK, or Europe versus Asia, whatever. It is, it's telling you really more about diagnostic practice than it is about treatment practice. And it's probably the most misused and misleading a statistic in cancer. Uh, for those who want to know more, I have short videos on the two biases involved. It's both lead time and overdiagnosis bias, uh, and I, uh, I have no uh, monetary uh, involvement with YouTube. Uh, okay, so here's, a, here's what we call a value judgment graph uh, question. 
is there anything good happening in this graph? I'm just curious. I guess there's some people that don't like to make value judgments. <laughs> By the way, our, our field is full of them. <laughs> All right, let's see. Yeah, that's a, I, I'm with the nose. I, I, I see this graph as showing there's just a lot more treatment. Treatment has downsides, has real harms, and mortality is flat. Well, <laughs> that's a good, right, okay. And at this point you're saying, okay, what the hell happened to Mr. Baker? Uh, so this is roughly what his CT looked like, you know, and this is his five centimeter uh, renal mass. And in, he, he was very strong on this doc. <laughs> you gotta come up with another option. And, and so I said, okay, we'll, we'll follow. And this is before people were following small renal mass. There were maybe one or two people at renal, you know, so there wasn't a lot of guidance. And the radiologists were nervous. I was nervous. The cancer surgeon thought I was crazy. Um, and I, I remember, you know, three months later watching the calibers come in, you know, oh, maybe it's a little bigger. It's 5.1. And, and then we repeated three months later, oh, no, maybe it's back to 4.9. You know, and, and then you realize, boy, there's a lot of measurement error in these things. And, and we repeated it again, and uh, it was about the same. And then we repeated it again in three months. And then we said, maybe we shouldn't be doing it every three months. Maybe we should go to six months. And we did the same, and so on and so forth. Well, at least we radiated the tumor, right? <laughs> I mean, there's no question. So we did something. Mr. Baker later died from pneumonia. He had an autopsy. By the way, this is one autopsy I really wanted to go to. You know, this is, I, I was there for it. He had renal cell carcinoma. It was about a five centimeter lesion, but beyond that one other kidney, that one kidney, no other cancer was found. Mr. Baker had a diagnosis of kidney cancer for about a decade. He was never treated for kidney cancer. He never developed symptoms of kidney cancer, and he did not die of kidney cancer. He was overdiagnosed. Now, it's rare we really know this in an individual. It's very rare that we know. In this case, we do, because it's rare that we make a diagnosis of cancer, do nothing, except a lot of CTs, <laughs> um, and uh, wait until the patient dies from someone else and know this was never a cancer that was going to cause them symptoms. Mr. Baker taught me three things early in my career. One, not all cancers invariably progress. That was kind of, no one told me that in medical school. You know, when I was in medical, it just marched forward. And so, Second, cancer survival statistics can be very misleading, can be very misleading. And third, patients may know something we don't. And I have to admit, I would probably have never followed this course of action if the patient wasn't, come on, doc, you can do better than this. You got to give me some other option. And so, I really honor him for pushing me on this and getting me to think about it hard. I'm going to assume all of you know this, so I'm not going to talk about this anymore, but these first two are the central points of what I want to talk with you about uh, this morning. And this is all driven by an assumption, a widespread assumption in medicine, that sooner is always better, that it's always the right thing to do for look for early forms of disease. There's no downside. This is really what we should be doing. And in the past, doctors treated a population. Of course, we didn't use the word, but you know, each one of these dots is meant to represent an individual. And our strategy was pretty simple. We waited for problems to develop. 
patients to have problems, come see us, and then we would diagnose and treat. And the early diagnosis ideal was extremely appealing. It was to take that same population and advance in time the point of diagnosis and treatment. With the hidden assumption that those cases that we found early were those who had the natural history of being destined to develop problems, symptomatic problems. It's a very appealing notion. But the reality is quite different. That whenever we look early, we find more patients. And now the natural history must be more complex. Hopefully, we've gotten those destined to develop problems, but as many of you know, sometimes we miss them because those destined to develop problems do so so quickly. We're not able to catch them early. But at the very least, we've got another problem. We've got a group not destined to develop problems, and that is the overdiagnosed and needlessly treated group. Now, we need to think about the word cancer differently. Not all abnormalities that meet the pathologic criteria for cancer will ultimately be relevant uh, to the patient. And that brings me to the barnyard pen of cancers. And there are three animals in the barnyard, the birds, the rabbits, and the turtles. And the goal of early detection is to fence them in, to catch them early. But you see the problem. It's really hard to fence in a bird because the bird has already flown away. And these represent the fastest growing cancers, the most aggressive cancers, the cancers that have already spread by the time they're detectable. Screening doesn't help with the birds. The question with the birds is, can you treat them? Now the rabbits are hopping around and you can catch them if you build enough fences. And these are the more slowly progressive cancers where screening tests can advance the time of diagnosis and have the potential to help if if, and this is a second prerequisite, if early treatment confers a huge advantage over late treatment. And then there are the turtles. You don't need any fences because these are the cancers that aren't going anywhere anyways. And these are cancers that are either so slowly progressing that the patient dies of other causes before they cause symptoms, or they're not progressing at all, or they're regressing. And the unfortunate reality is screening tests are really good at finding turtles. But we're not that good at distinguishing turtles from rabbits. We're getting better, but we're not that good at that. So our default is to treat everybody, thereby causing the major harm of early diagnosis, overdiagnosis, and overtreatment. Now, I want to share with you um, an article from Life magazine called The Plea Against the Blind Fear of Cancer. It's written by a cancer surgeon at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, by the name of George Kreil, and I just want to read one paragraph uh, to you. In clinical practice, to say that a person has cancer gives us little information about the possible course of his disease as to say he has an infection. There are dangerous infections that may be fatal, and there are harmless infections that are self-limited or may disappear, and that all sounds pretty sensible. And then he goes on to say this, the same is true of cancers. Cancer is not a single entity. It is a broad spectrum of diseases related to each other only in name. So I'm looking around the room and some of the younger faces, say, what's he talking about, life maybe? What's that? <laughs> and even, even some of the more geriatric members of the crowd are thinking, 
when did they do black and white photographs? <laughs> right? That must have been a long time ago. In fact, this article was written in 1955. Rude reminder, I've never had an original idea in my life. This guy was thinking about this problem. And Kreil is probably the originator of the birds, rabbit, turtles analogy. It's certainly not me. It's been around the urology community for years and years. And when I tried to track it down, the best I could come up with is it was a due to Kreil. Now, it's an uncomfortable reality for us, but there are a lot of turtles out there. And the way we know about that is from autopsy studies of people who have died from some other cause, a violent death or... Uh, you know, car accident or, or you know, cardiovascular, whatever. And we look hard at organs to see what the reservoir of undetected cancer is. And 1% to 3% of adults harbor unsuspected kidney cancers. And you might say, well, that doesn't sound like much, except it's an order of magnitude that we'll ever die from the disease. So there's a reservoir of undetected, unsuspected kidney cancer. At least a third of adults harbor small thyroid cancers. Over half of men over age 60 harbor small prostate cancer. And that's like not news to you, right? We, everyone's, yeah, everyone thinks, yeah, that, that, that's a, what people are less familiar with is about a third of women age 40 to 49 harbor small breast cancer, the smallest form of breast cancer, the form that some pathologists wish the word carcinoma was never attached to, the so-called ductal carcinoma in situ. So... Let's shift gears for just a second and look at something with maybe a different message. So I'm now showing you an incidence curve and a mortality curve over time. And I'm going to show this to you in two ways. This is the absolute rate over time. And in the bottom graph, I'm going to show you the relative rate to the initial year. And I'm just going to ask someone to tell me, what do they see? Don't make no inferences, but what, what, what is the pattern you see here? That's what I see, right? Is stable incidence decreasing mortality. Now, what do you think that means? So we're all in agreement. I think we're in agreement. That's what, what, what inference would you draw from that? <coughs> Treatment works? Or do you want to go a little bit more? It's getting better. Right? This looks like treatment's getting better. Oh, I've already asked. Okay. I'd say this is a steady improvement in treatment over time and a stable true cancer occurrence. Yeah, it's bouncing around a little bit. It's, a, you know, but it, it's basically a stable amount of disease, the disease burden, the true disease burden staying the same. But mortality is steadily going down. We're getting better. All right. Um, I, I'll give you some real numbers, not that that's going to help anybody. Um, anybody want to guess what cancer this is? CML, I hear, CML. Anything else? Any other guesses? Steady improvement across time. This is you guys doing good stuff. This is Hodgkin. Yeah, steady improvement across time. Pretty remarkable. I mean, it's... You know, it's down by two-thirds over. That's good news. That's great. Can't give yourself a hand. Yeah, right? That's really good. 
I want to be clear, there are some really important improvements in medicine. This is one of them. All right. Now, what's your inference here? What's a little different about this one? Sudden. Sudden. Is it a good development or a bad development? It's a pretty amazing development. What, what cancer is this? Yeah, this is CML. And I, 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 I have to thank a surgical resident who was teaching in my undergraduate class who taught me a little, because I don't really think about hematologic malignancy, but taught me about CML. And I'm going, wow, this is a pretty amazing drug. You can see its effect from space. Right? I mean, I, I mean, that's the way I look at it. You can see it from, I mean, I don't know anything about these drugs. Don't ask me anything about, I remember the Philadelphia chromosome. Okay, I, you know, I mean, I'm primary care, not. You gotta remember, I, did you make that clear? Have really weak training. <laughs> you know, I know a little about a whole bunch of things, but nothing about it. Yeah, but this is, this is unbelievable. All right, what's going on here? This isn't hard. What are you, what are you? Oh, is our diagnostic tools changing? Is this a good story or a bad story? What? It's a confusing story? I tell you, it's a good story. This cancer was, was rising, and it looks like the rise is real. Mortality is totally tracking incidence. Right, it's totally tracking incidence. And all of a sudden, it's starting to come down. That's good. I'm not sure why it's happening. But something, this is a rise and fall of true cancer occurrence, right? I mean, there's no incidence and mortality moving perfectly together. Anybody want to guess what cancer that is? I'll, I'll give you some numbers. Oh, it's more common. Notice the lines don't bounce around so much anymore because it's a common disease. Yeah, this is lung. This is lung in females. This is lung in females. Here, here, and you've got to keep the males and the females separate because there'll be problems if you put them together, right? Because th there's a difference, right? They really have a different pattern there. Is there anybody want to tell me a story? Why is that pattern so different? Well, but that's too, too terse for me to understand. Female smokers, tell me more. Okay, so something in the difference in the timing of smoking, right? And that is, in fact, true. That's borne out by the data. The prevalence of ever smoking peaked in the 70s for women, but it peaked in the 50s for men. Why was that? Well, very interesting stories. Part of the women's liberation movement, all of a sudden, the cigarette company said, we can be part of that. <laughs> and the Virginia Slims ads came on, and it really worked. And women were liberated to smoke. By the way, this, of course, is reflected in cancer burden two to three decades later. So you're wondering about the timing. It's delayed. Here's a quick digression. Um, lung cancer is the most important cancer. It is the most important cancer. And I really apologize because I suspect few of you actually, you have few people that deal with it, but it is the most important. Why? Because it's responsible for more deaths in this country than the next three cancers combined, breast, colon, and prostate. 
And cigarette smoking is the most important cancer risk factor. And the story of how we know that is actually a really important story. So with your permission, I'd like to talk about two dead white males. Is that okay? Let's do it. Sir Richard Dahl and Sir Bradford Hill. They weren't knighted until after they figured some of this stuff out. But these were two of the most prominent epidemiologists in the 20th century who turned the subject into a rigorous science. And in the process of doing that, they provided the most convincing data that cigarette smoking causes cancer. Now, there are a lot of people involved in this, but I would argue they, more than anyone else, provided the most convincing data. And here's what they did. They sent out in 1951 a short questionnaire to British physicians about their tobacco use. Now that was a very clever choice. And it was really an operational detail. They knew it'd be easier to follow British physicians because they had help from the British Medical Association and the National Health Service. So if they moved, they could track them. They'd be able to follow these people. In 1955, only four years later, they figured out who died and why. They looked at death certificates. If the finding was lung cancer, they actually did the confirmational pathology. And one year later, which was like light speed, that is light speed, in the 50s, they published an article in the BMJ, Lung Cancer and Other Causes of Death in Relation uh, to Smoking. Now, here's the big money table. There were at least, oh boy, there's probably 15 tables, but this is the big money table. You're looking at standardized death rates, standardized meaning age adjusted. Um, here are all the causes of death, but we don't care about anything. We want to focus on lung cancer. And there are the lung cancer deaths. And among non-smokers, the rate of lung cancer death was 0.07 per thousand. Among those smoking 25 grams or more, that's a pack or more a day, it, the rate of lung cancer death, this is death, 1.66. So what we like to do is develop a ratio, right? We want to have a ratio of what the risk is in those who smoke a pack or more a day versus the non-smokers. So that's 1.66 over 0.07. Is that going to be a big number? Is that going to be a big number? Yeah. yeah, that's going to be a big number. And I won't make you do it. I'll do it for you. It's 24. 24. And that we interpret as 24 times as likely to die from lung cancer if you're smoking a pack a day as compared to not smoking. Of course, we have a name for this. This is the relative rate. This is the relative rate. And of course, it drives all epidemiologic studies of association. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's a little humbling to remember most doctors smoked. Most doctors smoked. In the British study, over 70% had some smoking activity. It was a very common thing. You know, now we're just so beating up people. You know, it, 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 it was a very, very common behavior throughout the population. And doctors who regularly smoke are 24 times more likely to die from lung cancer than their non-smoking colleagues. That was another brilliant idea. Do you think doctors were thinking when they heard that, oh, we're talking about me. 
right? So this was a, a, another reason it was so brilliant to, to pick doctors. And then you know the rest of the story, 1964, the Surgeon General states pretty clearly, cigarettes peril health. I think that's a perfectly legitimate headline. And he talks about the cancer linked cited. And we see a change in behavior. It was hard, it was long, it was slow. But this is per capita cigarette consumption from 1900 to 2010. And this is the male lung cancer death rate. You know, it, it's a remarkable similar shaped curve, but it's just shifted to the right. A delay of 20 to 25 years. So, recap of this digression. One, about half the population was exposed to a cancer risk factor, and that factor had a risk, relative risk of over 20. Let, we, who cares about the percentage? It's over 20. And now an assertion on my part. Don't think we're going to find another cancer-causing risk factor that strong and that common in the population ever again. We won't. That strong and that common. All right, so back to a different one. What's your inference here? Good news, bad news? Good news? Looks like a cancer that's going away, doesn't it? I mean, there's just less incidence, less death from it. Maybe treatment's getting a little better because they're coming a little farther apart. But this is declining true cancer occurrence. Anybody want to guess what this is? That's a good guess. Well, a cervical would be a much more noisy, different one. Stomach. It's stomach. Are we screening for stomach cancer? Oh. No. Are we doing any diff anything different to prevent? Are we doing chemo prevention for stomach cancer? I don't think so. No, something else has changed. Something, something has nothing to do with medical care. Something else, and, and it may be something about H. pylori, maybe about the gut flora, don't ask me. But it's not about medical care. Something about our diets, our gut flora. What's your inference here? Maybe we should brought a copy of my book, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is overdiagnosis. Yeah, yeah, this is overdiagnosis. This is overdiagnosis with stable true cancer occurrence. You know, reported incidents, observed incidents, cannot be taken as a measure of true cancer burden. It is a, it, it can be a reflection of our diagnostic processes. All right, so I showed it to you with a different background before. I'm sorry, so I know. Changing the background made you, that threw you off, okay. Now, I wanna share one more thing about renal cell carcinoma and an article I published with a couple of colleagues uh, about a year and a half ago on the regional risk of CT imaging in the United States and the risk of nephrectomy. And we're in the Medicare data now, so we're in the 65 plus, and the question I have for you is, you know, what proportion of the Medicare uh, population would you expect to undergo a CT in the next five years? What's, what's the risk of having either an abdominal or a chest CT in the next five years, the two together, if you're a Medicare beneficiary? Rough, rough out, order of magnitude. Anybody want to guess? 30%, good guess. That's a very good guess. And it ranges something between 30% and 50% in major metropolitan areas. Note, everybody look at me, there's a CT in your future. 
I bet the lifetime risk is approaching 90%. I'm going to see if I can do with that one, but I don't know. I don't know. But I'll certainly get one if I'm in a car accident. Don't get me wrong. This is a great technology for people who are acutely injured, acutely ill. Uh, I'm going to plot that against the five-year risk of nephrectomy or ablation. Okay? And this is the scatter plot. Each one of those dots re represents a major metropolitan area in the United States. It's R is 0.56, highly statistically significant. If the chance of your, your risk of undergoing a CT goes up, your chance of having a kidney removed goes up. You want to name names? Sure, let's name names. Can't, I can't label every dot, but, but you know, who's at the upper right-hand quadrant? That's well, South Florida. It's always South Florida. <laughs> it's always South Florida. Who's down here? Well, it, it, it's always the Northwest. It's the Pacific Northwest, Northern California. You want to know, okay, I don't see Portland up there. Okay, so I made it drop right on there. Now, Portland's about there. It, was too, it wasn't room to put your name there. But, that, but you're, you're right about, about where Portland, Maine is, you know? Portland, two Portlands, no different. <laughs> so, um, when the editor of the BMJ, or Richard Lehman, a former editor, uh, uh, saw this paper, he, he wrote a tweet. I'm not a tweet guy, but I did love this tweet. It said, more CTs, fewer kidneys. <laughs> you know, and, and, and you know, that, that's a good, if you only get four words, I guess that's a good description of what I did. I, I, I don't know. Of course, you know, I can now do a riff off this, you know, you know more CTs, fewer thyroids. Right, because a lot of times, you know, what, what happens is you, you get a chest CT and you see a little nodule in the thyroid because it gets up into the neck. Or I could say more ultrasounds, fewer thyroid. Sometimes when we're just uh, uh, doing a, a carotid echo uh, to, to, to test for uh, stenosis, you know, we'll, oh, oh, I see something on the thyroid. Don't look at the thyroid, look at my vessels, you know. <laughs> Crazy, and I can also say more neck exams, fewer thyroids. <laughs> if people are doing neck exams with people with absolutely no symptoms, that is a screening test. I know we don't usually think of the physical exam as a screening test, but it can be, particularly when you're feeling the thyroid, which is always has nodules, which always you know, gets people to, to have further evaluation. This is thyroid cancer. Over a threefold, pretty stable until the mid-1990s. Then it shot up with the use of carotid ultrasound, more neck exams, and so forth, and fine needle biopsies, the mortality rate is about the most stable mortality rate in the SEER data. That matters. There are tens of thousands of Americans under that curve. Ninety percent of them are having a total thyroidectomy. They'll need lifelong thyroid replacement. They're at increased risk for recurrent nerve injury, and they're at risk for the worst complication, which is hypoparathyroidism and calcium metabolism problems. So, quick recap. Kidney cancer, incidence up 2.5-fold, mortality stable. Thyroid cancer, three times uh, increase, mortality stable. What about melanoma? Well, what about melanoma? Well, it's um, really uh, going up. This is melanoma, melanoma in situ. Um, it's up uh, nearly uh, six-fold. So, what one word best describes the conventional explanation from the media and other health surface sources for this epidemic? 
No right answer, but I'm just sort of, what are you hearing? What do you know? We've got this incredible increase. Okay, you can keep uh, adding. Well, this is interesting. I did this with dentists a few days ago when I first tried it. Oh, global warming, interesting. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so we do have a little bit of sun, but man, everyone's going tanning. Not, not so tanning. Okay, well, that's even... Uh, it's something about UV radiation, right? Either it's tanning or something. That, that would, I think that's the predominant uh, explanation. So, um, <clears throat> oh, and there, there, there's the mortality rate. Um, and I think I wanted to highlight this for you because actually in the last few years it's gone down. By the way, that has nothing to do with this. That's you treating metastatic melanoma, right? Where you really have made some big advances. So I don't want to deny that for a second. That has nothing to do with that. That has to do with you treating metastatic melanoma. Okay, so um, there will now be a short film. <laughs> and uh, you want to say, oh, how short? Um, okay, one minute, 49 seconds. Um, and please pay attention, okay? It's Skin Cancer Awareness Month, and today is Melanoma Monday. More people are diagnosed <laughs> with skin cancer each year than all other cancers combined. One in five people will develop skin cancer by the age of 70, and melanoma is the most dangerous form. It accounts for just 1% of skin cancer cases, but the majority of deaths. More than 91,000 people are expected to be diagnosed with melanoma this year. Dr. Elizabeth Hale is a dermatologist. She's a clinical associate professor of dermatology at NYU Langone Medical Center and also a paid consultant for Coppertone. Good morning. Good morning. Last <laughs> <laughs> year, you diagnosed me with stage zero melanoma, what are some of the risk factors for me? So I'm so grateful that we caught your melanoma early, Nora. Um, as you know, you have many of the risk factors. You grew up in Texas where it was very sunny. You probably did not wear enough sunscreen growing up. You even told me that you visited indoor tanning beds before prom and things like that. And indoor tanning is a big risk factor. We see skin cancer and melanoma in all skin types, but people with your coloring, fair skin, light eyes, um, who spend a lot of time in the sun, increased risk for sure. I thought one of the most interesting things I learned um, from this too was that tanning beds can increase your rate of melanoma by 75%. A lot of young women visit tanning beds. It is a big problem and as dermatologists we're really trying to help legislate this better. Some states already do not allow indoor tanning under the age of 18 and we're really trying to work at it because indoor tanning, like you mentioned, directly increases your risk for melanoma. In fact, last year a study came out that melanoma is more linked to tanning than smoking is to lung cancer. So it's a real risk, and we're really trying to educate our youths and our adolescents to stay out of tanning beds and to use more sunscreens. Now there's a lot there, okay? So now I'm going to dissect it, and we're going to look at certain segments just quickly again. Here's the first 10 seconds. It's Skin Cancer Awareness Month, and today is Melanoma Monday. More people are diagnosed with skin cancer each year than all other cancers combined. One in five people will develop skin cancer by the age of 70. Okay, I am scared. I don't know about you. More than all other cancers combined. So let's, let's break this up. One in five will develop skin cancer by age 70. That's probably roughly right. Actually, I'm surprised it's so low. But does that mean one in five will die from skin cancer by age does it mean that? No. 
But can you understand why a lot of the public, that might be a confusing message? Yeah, that could be like a really confusing message. Okay, let's keep going. Five people will develop skin cancer by the age of 70, and melanoma is the most dangerous form. It accounts for just 1% of skin cancer cases, but the majority of deaths. More than 91,000 people are expected to be diagnosed with melanoma this year. Okay, that's a lot of numbers and a lot of things are shifting underneath my feet here as we're doing this, and, but they're roughly right. So 1% of all skin cancers are melanoma. So what's my risk of getting melanoma? Well, it was one in five, uh, one in 500. Oh, does that feel different? Is that relevant? <laughs> yeah, it's very relevant. And don't tell me about the number of new cases each year. I don't wanna hear about the number of new cases. I want to hear about how many people are dying from this disease. I want to know about the feared clinical outcome. Anybody want to guess how many people are dying of this disease? No, it's not one, a little bit more than 1,000. This is Sears estimate, 7,230 deaths expected this year. Well, that feels a little different. That feels just a little different. By the way, Sears estimates for cancer death in the United States, 2019, melanoma, 7,230. Anybody want to guess lung cancer? Anybody, 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 please help me. It's bigger, yeah, it's, it's down now. It used to be close to 200, now it's down 142. Yeah, oh, that's not the same, is it? That's not the same. Okay, quick clinical correlation on skin cancer. There are two broad categories, melanoma, 1% of all skin cancers, and everything else, non-melanoma skin cancer. And by the way, I think people are getting a lot of mileage in the dermatology community about conflating the two. Don't conflate the two. Melanoma skin cancer, it's an important disease. Yes, it's an important, it's not the most important, it's an important disease. It's the 20th most common cause of cancer death. And it can be a horrible disease. We all know that. Non-melanoma skin cancer, it virtually never causes death. In fact, SEER doesn't even count as a cancer. The federal tumor register, they don't even bother to track this. They, they wish it wasn't even there. They don't count it. Let's keep going. 91,000 people are expected to be diagnosed with melanoma this year. Dr. Elizabeth Hale is my dermatologist. She's a clinical associate professor of dermatology at NYU Langone Medical Center and also a paid consultant for Cochrane. <laughs> they, wouldn't, they wouldn't let her talk about sunscreen. I don't want to hear about the value of sunscreen from a paid consultant from Coppertone. I don't know if that's just me, but I don't want that. I'd like someone independent to tell me about the value of sunscreen. She doesn't look too happy about that paid consultant part, does she? <laughs> okay, so let's continue. So I'm so grateful that we caught your melanoma. We caught it early. Um, as you know, you have many of the risk factors. You're a bad person. It's your fault. You told me that you visited indoor tanning beds before prom and things like that, and indoor tanning is a big risk factor. Well, how big? Don't just tell me it's big. How big is it? But luckily, Nora keeps going. I learned um, from this too was that tanning beds can increase your rate of melanoma by seventy-five percent. Okay. Thank. Thankfully, she put some numbers on it. Now, your last question: increase your rate of melanoma by seventy-five percent implies an RR of. Ah, very good. Either one of those is right. 
I'm a rounder. I would have just said less than two. <laughs> but that's really important. And, and of course, most people, they hear percentage increase 75%. That sounds as, even worse than 24 times, right? I mean, this, this movement between 75% increase to times as likely is not easy for people, and yet it's hugely, hugely important. All right. In fact, last year a study came out that melanoma is more linked to tanning than smoking is to lung cancers. Okay, quick one. So where does this statement come from? I mean, to be fair to this woman who I do not know, she's got data behind it. Uh, not, not very good data, but I just want to share it with you. This is uh, from, uh, I don't know what journal it's from. It's International Prevalence of Indoor Tanning. And it's a meta-analysis. And overall, we estimate 452,796. We estimate 452,796. Like, I can't even read that, right? I can't even read that. So I'm going to rewrite it. I'm going to rewrite it. But I'm only, all I'm doing is rounding the numbers so we can kind of get the order of magnitude, right? Overall, we estimate 450,000 cases of non-melanoma skin cancer, like I even want to hear about that, and 10,000 cases of melanoma are attributable to indoor tanning. To put this in perspective, approximately 360,000 cases of lung cancer are attributable to smoking each year in these regions. These regions are the United States, the UK, and Australia. Well, that's a little bit of an issue. So, I, so, so the argument is, well, there are more cases attributable to it, so therefore it is a more linked to uh, smoke, to, to more, more, more linked than smoking is to lung cancer. But let's put this in perspective. How many cases of non-melanoma skin cancer are there in this, these countries? Well, it's over 4 million cases. So less than 10% in this estimate are due to indoor tanning. And 10,000 cases of melanoma, out of how many? Out of 130,000 cases in these three countries. The 36, so they're both less than 10% of the cases are attributable to the exposure of tanning. How about those 360,000 cases of lung cancer? That's among 400,000 cases. Oh, that's like 80% of the lung cancers are attributable, which is what you know to be true, right? Can you get lung cancer if you don't smoke? Of course you can. But most lung cancers are attributable to, and by the way, almost all these people die. None of these people die, and only about one in ten of those die. So, this is really important. I want you to repeat after me. Melanoma is not more linked to tanning than smoking is to lung cancer. All right, everybody? Melanoma is not more linked to tanning than smoking is to lung cancer. Unbelievable. By the way, I am not. <laughs> I am not a paid consultant for the indoor tanning industry. But if they want to write me a check, give my address, okay? Because I'd be, you know, okay. So what do we know about UV radiation and melanoma? Well, we have some meta-analyses. This is tanning bed use, and you know these plots of each study and showing you the confidence interval. You just want to know the summary estimate. It's 1.9. That's tanning bed use versus no tanning bed use. And what do we know about sun exposure? Well, the, the, the most reliably um, associated exposure is a history of sunburn in childhood. Like, I think we all had this, but I don't know. But, uh, and its summary RR is two. Interestingly, 
Dahl suggested ignoring RRs less than three. He said there were too many alternative explanations. It's hard to, they can be confounded. They're just, well, it could be statistical noise. Actually, Dahl actually suggested that the lower limit of the 95% confidence interval should be above three before we really thought they were important. So these are small effects. These are small effects. Remember, I want to be clear, non-melanoma skin cancer, it's clearly UV related. It's, clear, it's clearly UV related. No, no one deba debates that. But melanoma skin cancers, it's weakly, if, if it even exists. Remember, a lot of them happen in totally non-sun exposed regions, the bottom of the foot, the hand, the gum, the eye, you know, it's, it's, it's weakly UV related. And yet we've got this amazing increase. And I'm gonna assert that an exposure with a relative risk of two cannot explain a six-fold increase in incidence. It just can't. And I want to try that out on you because this is not something I can find anywhere in epidemiology textbooks of how the, the, the strength of association relates to what can happen to incidents. But it's not that hard to figure out. Let's take the worst case scenario. You got an RR of two, UV radiation and melanoma. And you say, okay, at time zero, no one is sunburned. No, everybody's indoors. Everybody, they live indoors. And at the end, everybody is sunburned. What's the most that can happen to incidents? Well, if it starts at one, it can go to two. That's the most that can happen. That's what an RR2 means. And you, because it, the proportion of the population exposed is central to this. Now, how about cigarettes and lung cancer? I'm gonna call it 20. We'll start in the 1900, no one smokes. There aren't any cigarette smokings. And let's say by the end of the period, everybody smokes. Well, then it's possible to have a 20-fold increase in lung cancer incidence, right? It's possible because it's a really strong risk factor if you move from no one exposed to everyone exposed. Well, what, so now, oh, by the way, I'm gonna put them on the same scale so you can kind of see them so that we've got, got them together. What's observed incidence? Now, now I've got years here, 1935, 2015. And because of the Connecticut Tumor Registry, we can look back in time to see exactly what's happened. Well, in melanoma, it's unbelievable. It's up 30-fold uh, from uh, the 1930s in Connecticut. In lung cancer, this, that's an epidemic of diagnosis. That's an epidemic of diagnosis. And it reflects, you know, all pigmented lesions going in, all of them getting biopsy, you know, increasing biopsy rate, everybody's nervous about the disease, et cetera. What's happening in lung cancer? Well, it's remarkably close to what you'd expect. That in fact, it peaks at about the time half the population is exposed, delayed by about 20 years. It goes up about tenfold. The incidence of lung cancer went up about tenfold in the Connecticut Tumor Registry. That's a genuine epidemic. That's a genuine epidemic. Melanoma is more linked to tanning than smoking is to lung cancer. Melanoma is more linked to tanning than smoking is to lung cancer. Melanoma is more linked to tanning than smoking is to lung cancer. Melanoma is more linked to tanning than smoking is to lung cancer. Melanoma is more linked to tanning than smoking is to lung cancer. Melanoma is more linked to tanning than smoking is to lung cancer. Melanoma is more linked to tanning than smoking is to lung cancer. Melanoma is more linked to
we're giving really confusing messaging. We're not giving people any sense of what's bigger and relative to what. And I think we're inviting people to say, you guys don't know what you're doing. Everything causes cancer. I'm going to go out and shoot myself. I mean, this is crazy. The our cancer is worse, more important, bigger, insert superlative than your cancer pissing contest among specialists is absurd. Okay. Oh, there is a final exam question. In the early 1950s, the five-year survival for patients with melanoma was 49%. Given what I've learned today, I'd guess the five-year survival for melanoma now is... Ooh. No, it's 99. It's 99. We got, get, go to 99. <laughs> go to 99. You know, when, when you have this 34-fold increase, the typical case is going to do... Great. The typical case, even though mortality is flat, until you guys started to be able to better treat, in the very last few years, malignant melanoma. So, my take-home points, not all cancers invariably progress. Cancer survival statistics can be very misleading. And my thing I might add is, you know, our exuberance for early cancer detection is fueled by a combination of true belief. You know, of course, it makes sense. It's good. Misleading statistics, feedback that makes it look like there's epidemics out there, um, uh, and uh, money. Thank you very much for your attention. I'll be happy. I'm sorry I went over a little bit. Uh You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.